So as you're making your way then to Luke chapter 11 this morning, head over there. I, I want to share with you a little American history. Now, I, I've got to admit, I, I don't know much about U.S. history. Uh, I didn't learn much about it in school, not because I don't care, but because the nation of Texas doesn't care. <laughs> Growing up, we, we take Texas history in the fourth grade, the seventh grade, at some point in high school. And if you go to a state college... You have to have six credits of U.S. history, but you can do half of those as Texas history. <clears throat> uh, now, I imagine there was, there was some U.S. history along the way, but it was definitely less emphasized. I know the one thing about U.S. history that was important was that we remember the Alamo. Uh, and beyond that, I don't remember too much. And so I, I tell you that to confess that everything I know about U.S. history at this point in my life, I learned from the musical Hamilton, which is a good way to learn it. And... One of the more interesting things that I remember picking up on that and, and learning was that, and, and tell me how many of you know this, France assisted the U.S. in the Revolutionary War. Most of you know this. You are good Americans. The rest of you are pathetic like me. <clears throat> and, and the plan was that when France needed help later, we were going to come and help them. That's kind of how it worked. Um, and, and then when France went to war with, with Britain later on, Alexander Hamilton and, and Thomas Jefferson had this epic rap battle to try to convince George Washington, President George Washington, whether we should be involved or not. Uh, and, and that's the way it went. Now, I learned it from a musical. I'm starting to think maybe the rap battle was artistic license. Um, but the end result was that the, the U.S., as a very young nation, didn't feel prepared to be able to go in and help. And so we, we, we gave something. We, we gave something. Anyone know what it was called that said what our stance in that war was going to be? This is bonus points for your American history. The proclamation of nobody. Neutrality. The proclamation of neutrality. The idea was we were officially on nobody's side. You two fight and we're staying out of it. We're going to stay right here neutral in the middle. And, and, and so it might be in our American DNA somehow that we just kind of try to be neutral, to stay in the middle, right? Not, not on social media uh, so much, but, uh, you know, but generally we, we tend to want to stay neutral, right? Not as much as Canada, I know, but <clears throat> still... Uh, and I know some of you are thinking, no, not at all, right? You're the instigators out there. You like to start conflicts and, and pull two people into it and just see what happens. I'm pointing at you, Sam, because it is you. Uh, others of you are contrarians, but most of us tend to want to side in the way that Hamilton does and just take this stance of neutrality in, in most issues because it allows us to avoid conflict. It, it keeps us safe in the middle. And, and maybe we just don't care about the issues. Maybe we don't care about the people particularly involved. And, and oftentimes it's, it's a spine stance uh, for many issues, right? But Jesus is going to make abundantly clear in our passage today that neutrality with him is simply not an option. Not an option. And so we're going to go ahead and, and read our, our passage this morning, and then we're going to work our way back to why neutrality is not an option when it comes to Jesus Christ. Uh, and we're going to read this in two sections today, just to let you know, the first one a little longer than the second one. Uh, but our first one's beginning in chapter 11, verse 14. <clears throat> Now, it's Jesus we're talking about when it says he at the beginning. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. 
When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household folds. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, as we seek to understand this portion of your holy word today, would you enlighten our minds for that purpose so that we might fully understand this, this uh, at points difficult passage? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So right off the bat, it's real simple. A demon, uh, a man is possessed by a demon and the demon causes him to be mute. Kids, that word mute is kind of like the mute button on your remote at home. It means he cannot speak. No words are able to, to be made from his mouth. And uh, what we're seeing here then is, is maybe the shortest description of any miracle ever accomplished by Jesus. Uh, be, because we're just told simply here, right, that, that Jesus forces the demon out of the man, cast him out, and the man is able to speak again. He's healed. And as is expected in our passage, most of the people at the beginning are marveled, right? You see something like this happen, and they are just amazed, right? They're thinking, this guy, Jesus, is is something special. Did you just see? He just healed Jimbo. Jimbo can speak again, right? Or whatever his name actually is. And now in 2019, we're, we're probably more likely, if you'd been there and witnessed this with our mindset, is to think this whole thing is fake. I don't know what happened, but somehow it, it's fake. That's the, the skepticalness of our, our nature. But, but here they have absolutely no doubt that the miracle was performed because maybe they know Jimbo or whatever his name is. They know the man. They know his condition. They know that he's just been healed. And, and so they're absolutely amazed. They know it's real. But for some of them, they have some questions. And, and the first question is, by what power did Jesus actually accomplish this? What, what power did this amazing thing just happened by. And it's the Jewish leaders, it's not explicit in our passage, but it is in another one that tells the same story, that they make this accusation that Jesus did it by the power of Beelzebul. That's an ancient name for a pagan false god that they're using here, right? It's, it's a name that's actually mentioned in 2 Kings 1-2, only if you were to turn there, you'd find that it's spelled a little different. And I love it because uh, the author of 2 Kings uh, comes in and, and mockingly, intentionally misspells the name Beelzebul, and so that it ends up meaning Lord of the Flies. Kind of this like mocking of this pagan god. But anyway, by the time of, of Jesus' time, time, the general idea among the Jewish people was that Beelzebul was either uh, the chief demon or, or Satan himself. That was the idea that they're talking about it. That's why they call him the prince of the demons, right? That, the leader in that sense. And so they're saying here that that Jesus is in absolute cahoots with the most evil being of all time. That's what they just said. Right. That's how he's doing this. They're claiming. 
And so at the heart of what they're saying here about Jesus right now is, is absolute blasphemy. They are, they are crediting a work that has been done by God as a work that is done by Satan. And in verse 16, we learn that, that the others, right, that, that there's others there that they're just not impressed by this miracle. Like, that's neat. Uh, we, we're not doubting whether you healed him or not, but we want to see another sign, something, something to really convince us that you are really the Son of God. You know, do something amazing. And, and the group, you know, this group, you, you kind of think, well, they're not antagonistic to Jesus, are they? They're just incredibly skeptical. And, and, and you, so you kind of think, well, that's, that's the better group at least, right? And on some level it is. But you also have to remember that, that they're no closer to actual faith in Jesus than the ones who are antagonistic to him. And asking for a sign is, is still a very common demand we put on God even in our day and age. Expecting, you know, Jesus to, to speak audibly. You know, if you'll just <clears throat> speak to me, then I'll believe in Jesus. Why won't he? Of course he can. That, that's the sign I, I demand if I'm going to believe. Or, or maybe, you know, God, heal my friend of cancer. If you do that, if you answer this prayer, I'll be so sure you exist. I will believe in you. But give me a sign like that. And, and Jesus is going to address this sign issue a little more in the passage next week. But, but the simple answer is that no, no sign is really going to change unbelief. It takes something different, something more. And so then... Regarding their accusation that Jesus is in cahoots with the devil here, Jesus, being God, knows their thoughts. And he could just say, you know, think what you want. I don't care. You know, he could have done that. But, but instead, he responds to them boldly. And in his boldness, we, we see just the compassion of Christ to engage them in this conversation. <clears throat> And really, we've got to appreciate the two ways that Jesus is going to respond to this accusation. Because the first one I kind of love, because if you really boiled it down, the argument is your accusation is dumb. Right? Now, it's Jesus, so he's going to do it much more kindly than that. But that's what it equates to. Listen to how Jesus shows them how unreasonable, how absolutely absurd their accusation is. Verse 17, you can see it. Look at it. Jesus says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? And so he's pointing them first to this universal truth, known truth, that that unity is always a strength for good or evil, whatever it is, any organization, any group. It is always a strength, and division always for disaster, leads to disaster. A, a king, if a kingdom is divided, it will be working to destroy itself. A little more U.S. history. I didn't learn this in a musical, but the Civil War, right? Not the most flourishing moment in our nation's history. It was moving towards destruction until there was a, a point of peace eventually where we could come back together. Now, Jesus also says that a house divided falls. Think about it. Every, every single divorce begins with disunity between a husband and a wife. And thus, Jesus is pointing out here to them, if Satan is casting out his own demons and he's setting people free, then that would be the dumbest plan ever. It is a terrible accusation. And then in verse 19, Jesus gives a second response. And this one is pointing out their hypocrisy because for, for some reason, we don't know the details, but, uh, but who he's calling uh, 
Well, here's what he's saying. He's saying, if the demons are casting out in the power of Beelzebub, aren't your sons, right? Meaning your, your, your followers also working in the power of Satan when they cast out demons. You see, this would be then a good place for Jesus to just, just kind of drop the mic. Like, I've shattered your arguments. I'm done. I'm out of here. You have nothing less. But, but he goes on, and, and he's still appealing then with their, their, their reasoning, right? Their mental reasoning. And, and he points out here, if, if I do miracles, do this miracle by the finger of God, then, then you can be sure that the kingdom of God has arrived. And you know what it means when it says the finger of God? Forget everything you know about American culture. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, but in Exodus 8, 19, when the magicians are there, this is, this is the, the plagues, right, in Egypt. And, and the plague of the gnats happen, and Pharaoh goes to his magicians, and they're like, what, you know, they're trying to replicate the gnats thing, and they can't do it. And, and finally, they come to Pharaoh, and they tell him, this is the finger of God. In, in other words, this is not magic. There's nothing we can do here. This, this is real And this is accomplished by God. There's no doubt of it. And so Jesus here is telling them that the kingdom of God really has arrived. Again, that's a statement of compassion to them. Because the kingdom, this is the kingdom that they've been waiting for generation after generation. This is the kingdom that is forever, right? The the incorruptible kingdom with with a king who is all powerful and all gracious. and, And Jesus is that king. And we enter into the kingdom. We receive our citizenship by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, you see the casting out of demons. This is a way of announcing the kingdom of God. And here's why. Because because this work of Jesus is, is Jesus plundering, destroying the kingdom of Satan. That's, that's what that story that starts in verse 21 is about. Listen to this again. <clears throat> When a strong man, fully armed, guard, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor and, in which he trusted and he divides the spoil. Now, it's a little confusing at first because you and I read it and we think, oh, a crime happened, right? And so you kind of mix up who's who in this illustration. <clears throat> it, see, the strong man here at the beginning, that's Satan in the picture. And so you can picture this. He, he has his, his palace, his, his house, and, and Satan is fully armed, you know, bulletproof vest. There's guns strapped across him or weapons of whatever would make sense in that picture. And, and everything that he owns, everything he's taken and possesses is, is safe behind him because he's guarding it, right? And, and this is an intense and a terrifying picture of Satan's hold on unredeemed sinners. And it's telling us here that a person's heart must be rescued by force, by a power far superior to the devil, if he or she is to be rescued at all. And see, there is one strong man, only one strong man who can do that rescuing. You you see it here in the passage? Look at that. The, The stronger man in the story, this isn't a criminal. This is... Jesus showing up like Rambo right at the palace. He's, he, he's describing here what's happening when he's casting out demons. And I, I love how Jesus uses this, this violent offense in this illustration here. Because Jesus is why the gates of hell cannot prevail. He goes to the devil's house. He kicks in the door. You know, he overthrows Satan, removes his armor, takes all his stuff back from him, right? Or from him, takes the people that the devil has been claiming as his own. Is that not a 
amazing picture of redemption right there. It's the evil one. The evil one is overthrown by the holy one in this moment. The kingdom of God comes with power to defeat Satan and sin and anything else that has, that has possessed our hearts. That's, that's why in Acts 26, 18, you know, near the very end of the book, it tells us that through the gospel, people, and this is a quote from Acts 20, 26, uh, 18, through the gospel, people turn from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And all of it is, is ultimately fully accomplished at the cross and with the resurrection and, and here we are learning that we cannot escape the devil's influence and, and the power of sin that is over us. But if your faith is in Jesus, if, you're, if your faith is in him, then you can be absolutely certain that Christ has come and rescued you already. And it gives you a little picture of what it took for Jesus to rescue you. We, we also learn that Jesus can rescue anyone. Anyone. Doesn't matter how dark their life seems, how how strong their 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 antagonism or resistance might seem, uh, how how just hardened their heart might seem. Jesus can rescue anyone, even you, if you're here and you're thinking, "I think this is all a bunch of crazy stuff." And, and so then, verse twenty three is said to all those listening, right? It's said to the, to the false accusing Jewish leaders. It's said to the, the, the sign-seeking skeptics, the miracle-marveling observers, and every single one of us as we hear the Lord speak to us today through his written word. Many, many people, before we read that, many people in our day but believe that they're neutral to Jesus, right? I'm not anti-G. I mean, how could I possibly be anti-Jesus or against Jesus? I'm not persecuting Christians. I'm not blaspheming his name. I just, I'm just neutral, right? That's kind of how we, we, we tend to think. And some might even be annoyed at the idea that, that there's this division, right? As if there's only two boxes you can check. As though they're, they're, this is something maybe the church came up with. Man invented this idea. Uh, I mean, let me be very clear, crystal clear here. It's Jesus himself who delivers this proclamation of non-neutrality when he says there, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. We, we know that, that Jesus is kicking down the door, overthrowing the strong man and gathering his people. That we know. For, for all others, including you and me, there can be absolutely no neutrality. Either we are in union with Christ or we are against Christ. And if we are in union with Christ, we are joining him in the, in the great work of setting free and gathering souls for God's glory, for the kingdom of God. Any, anything else, and we're only driving people away, scattering them from the flock. Now, before we go on, I do want to warn us all. Don't, don't miss the point Jesus is making here. He doesn't say this so that we can all step back and look at other people and be like, yeah, they're with Jesus. They're against Jesus. This is not why Jesus tells us. It's not to evaluate other people here, right? It's, it's so that each of us will consider how we relate to Jesus so that we will look uh, into our own lives and, and, and look around, right? And, and begin to see that there is no neutral zone to stand in at all. There, there's just a, a line in the sand, right? No neutral zone, just a line in the sand and we must move to one side or the other. We, we can't remain neutral when it comes to Jesus, and we need to understand these words a little better. Did you notice Jesus doesn't say you're either for me or against me? 
It says very specifically, you're with me or against me. You know that the difference of being for Jesus and being with Jesus? To be, to be for Jesus is, is something more like being a, a fan of a sports team or a fan of a musician. Or, or you know, you, you watch from a distance. You kind of like it, let them, you know, that team, whatever it might be. You really hope things go well, but you're not really united with them. You're not really part of it. But, but to be with Jesus is to be a disciple, to be a, a true follower of Jesus. And theologically speaking, this is, this is the... <clears throat> To have union with Christ is the way we think of it. To be united with him. Where, where he goes, you go. What he's accomplished was accomplished for you and so on. And so then Jesus' rightful role is, is to be the Lord of your life. It doesn't matter. It's not that that becomes his rightful role when, when you begin to follow him. Just the fact that you are creation, his rightful role is to be the Lord of your life. We, we, we should be able to say, Jesus is my king. Jesus is my master. He is the absolute highest authority in my life. There is nothing higher at all in my life. If, if I deny Jesus, then being the Lord of my life, I, I'm against Jesus. I know we're not going to like that division. That's the division Jesus is making for us. See, anyone or anything that owns you more than Jesus owns you is exceedingly dangerous to your soul. Just is. Even if it's you, who owns you more than Jesus owns you. See, the moment any of us rejects the right of, of Christ to tell us how to live, the right to determine what's right and wrong, what's holy, what's profane, if, if we do not bow our life to Jesus, we, we may be for Jesus, but we're not with Jesus. And Jesus says, if, if that's how we relate to him, again, we're not neutral, we're actually against him. Uh, in a similar way, if we, if we say that we don't need forgiveness, or we don't really care to have the love of Christ. That, that's a heart that is, that is ultimately against the Lord. A heart that opposes the Holy Spirit. A heart that is rejecting the grace of God the Father. Because apathy and indifference, that's not neutrality. It's not. Apathy and indifference is full opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Christians, we, we may find, when we look at this, we may find that we're not with Jesus as much as we wish was true. And my hope is if you're thinking that way, that, that you realize it's, it's more from ignorance than it is outright rebellion. In, in which case, my, my prayer, my hope for us is that a statement like this from Jesus will serve as just a wake-up call for us as we evaluate our life. You know, maybe we've compartmentalized our life. I'm, I'm totally with Jesus theologically. Right? I have, these are the right answers, and everyone should have these right answers, and I will defend these answers. But, but maybe not so much we're with him in other areas of our life. And so maybe ask ourselves, in, in what areas am I with Jesus, and in what areas am I ultimately living as though I'm against Jesus, right? Our, our businesses, our jobs, our parenting, our entertainment choices, or, you know, maybe ask yourself, am I, am I currently trusting Jesus in every area of my life? In your marriage? In your singleness? Your, your profession, sicknesses that you might be facing, your, your future, that's a huge one, right? Are you trusting the Lord here? Now, listen, this, this doesn't mean we're always going to do the right thing. Don't mistake that. You, not just you might mess up, you will mess up. That's the reality of being a human. You are going to sin. But Christian, you, you can find great encouragement that you're with Jesus when you're truly grieved by sin. 
When you're able to repent of sin, not just know that you're supposed to repent of sin, but actually go to the Lord and repent of sin, you know, and then rest with gratitude and the joy of knowing that that sin is forgiven. And, and so then at the very heart of what Jesus' statement here is getting at is, is how we believe wholeheartedly in Jesus and how we believe all others also desperately, desperately need Jesus to rescue their souls. And so when it comes to evangelism, then, are we with Jesus in gathering, right? Are we loving our neighbors? Are we serving those in need? Are we sharing audibly the the hope of the gospel with people of all walks of life? Not just people that are just like us. Or are we against Jesus, scattering people through our own apathetic gospel silence? J.C. Ryle, who I quote all the time, Uh, says this, let it be settled determination of our minds that we will serve Christ with all our hearts. Let there be no reserve, no compromise, no half-heartedness in our Christianity. A Christian, if you're a little discouraged at this point, I encourage you, don't be. I mean, the way God changes and works in our life is through his word, and you're hearing it now. Um, This could be a time of encouragement for you. And also, if you're discouraged, encourage you to go to God and pray like David does in Psalm 86, 11, where he's asking, Lord, give me an undivided heart for you. Unite my heart towards you. Now, at this point, I kind of just want to stop, right? Because that's that's a full sermon. That's plenty to talk about. And, and I just want to end it right here. But, but Jesus tells one more story, and it's connected to everything we've been looking at here. And, and so we're going to look at that, and, and we'll, it'll be a much shorter section, okay? Uh, but let's go back and read, starting in verse 24 here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So I'll tell you a quick little story. When when we first moved into our house, we went to our mailbox, opened it, and found these little black ant traps in there. But no ants. Days went by, no ants. So eventually I go out there and thought, these are gross in the mailbox, I'm taking them out. I take them out. 24 hours later, the entire mailbox is infested with ants everywhere. Uh, the, the only way for our mailbox to be free and clean of these ants is for these traps to dwell permanently in the mailbox, for, the, for them to be there, right? If they're there, then the, then the ants can't live there. I know that's one of the weirder illustrations you've ever heard, maybe. Uh, but that's what's going on in this story, in a sense. It's a warning Right? Ultimately, that the souls of men and women are in serious danger if the Holy Spirit does not dwell in our hearts. And so you see in the story here, the, the demon's not overthrown by Jesus, right? He just wanders off, right? Leaving the man clean. The, the man in the house is synonymous in the story. Uh, and so the man, in his own strength, cleans up his life, his house, right? He's, he's going to, as our, our, our culture, our cultural cliche puts it right now, he's going to be the best version of himself. Right, cleaning everything up. As as one of my, you know, friends says, he 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 gets his poop in a group. Put that into your vocabulary. It just means making effort to try to try to clean up your life in in one way or another. 
I, that's delivering on. Katie dared me to put that in a sermon someday, like two months ago. <clears throat> so, <laughs> no matter how you actually say it, though, what we're getting at here is, is, is the demon finds no home out in the desert. That's the waterless places. That's what we see, uh, you know, back in, what was it, chapter 8 or 9, the demon that drives the man out in the desert. For whatever reason, they tend to go there. And, and so he, he ha- finds no home in the desert, and so he returns, and he finds, aha, here's the man I left, and it's available, right? There is a vacancy here. It, it's a clean but uninhabited house. And so he and, and seven other more evil demons move in, and that man becomes like a frat house on the Sunday after fake St. Patty's Day uh, is kind of the picture they want you to see here. So R.C. Sproul regarding this, said, regarding this said, Not everyone who is an unbeliever is demon-possessed, but all unbelievers are under the influence of Satan. Now, you've all known people who have made massive efforts in their own strength to try to clean up their life, to do some good, you know, that, well, only to later see it fall apart and, and be worse than that. My, my heart has been broken uh, so many times by people that seem to be coming in to understand the faith, only to see uh, at some point it all fall apart and their life be worse than it was before. And it's heartbreaking. But you need to hear this, though. Be good from this point forward, is not the gospel. It's not. The gospel is not that here's, here's a redo, right? A, a second life in your, your video game or something like that. Try again. It, it's not be good from this point forward. It's, it, the gospel is that, if that were the gospel, none of us, no one would be saved. The, the gospel is that you, you can't be good on your own. The gospel is acknowledging that if your life were a house, it would be a filthy house. And the only way it's ever going to be cleaned up, to even begin to be cleaned up, is if your faith is in Jesus Christ. And that's because when evil comes seeking to live in your heart, if your faith is in Christ, it finds that someone already lives there. You can't live there. You just can't. It's already taken by the Holy Spirit who dwells there. And, and, and so looking back, you, you know, you can if you're glancing down to verse 13 in this chapter. And, and you see that, that the Holy Spirit, who, who God promises, uh, you know, is who we're talking about to, to anyone who asks for it. Um, Philip Riken of this says, we need to pray for the stronger one to give us the supernatural transforming grace of the Holy Spirit. Who alone can replace our lust with purity our worry with trust, our greed with contentment, our anger with patience, our profanity with peace, and our addictions with selfless zeal for the glory of God. Now, just one last thing and we'll be done here. If you're here today and you know you're not with Jesus, I want you to end with this one beautiful truth that you must know. Jesus always welcomes men and women who are against him to become those who are with him by grace through simple faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long to be with you, to spend our days and our years as gatherers, as we sow the seed of your holy gospel in the lives of people, lives of our our children, our friends, our fellow Christians in this covenant community, uh, 
workers at our places of work, our classmates, strangers on the street, anyone, Lord, that you might give us opportunity to speak to. People like us and people completely unlike us. Lord, give us a a place of service in the gospel harvest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.